So this morning we come to Revelation chapter 4 and this is the second vision that John has received from God. Uh, Olivia has just read to us from Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 through to 14 and that portion of scripture relates very well to the chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation and this is the vision where John is taken into the throne room of heaven and he sees all that is there and all that is taking place. And from there, um, the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds. So this second vision that John has marks a change of emphasis in the book of Revelation. So John leaves behind the scene which concerns matters surrounding the church on earth. And he is taken up by the Spirit into the very throne room of God. In Revelation 4 and 5, John describes what he sees in this vision. He describes what he sees and he describes what is happening there. And there is quite a lot going on in this scene. We must remember that what he saw with his own eyes would have been pretty near inexpressible. He was in the very presence of God. He was in the very presence of God in all his glory and holiness. Now, when we put this vision that John sees into context with what was going on in the church of the day, we see the theme of encouraging the persecuted church continues through. The main focus of Revelation 4, and this is one of the key themes that comes through the whole book of Revelation, the main focus is the throne of God. And what the throne of God conveys to us is that God is king. He is ruling and reigning over all of creation and he is ruling and reigning over all of history. So despite whatever we experience, God is the king of the universe. His purposes are being worked out continually in our own lives and they're also being worked out in the big picture. And not only that, but as king, God will bring judgment on all the evil that is in the world. So whatever injustices we endure, God has them in hand. And as I said, Revelation 4 and 5 also set the scene for the rest of the book of Revelation and it's from this scene of the throne room that the rest of Revelation unfolds. Now John isn't the only one who's had a vision of heaven. We've just read through the vision that Daniel had. Various prophets have had similar visions to the one that John had and there are many elements of these other visions which appear in John's vision as well. So before we come to um, our reading from John uh, from Revelation this morning of what John has seen, we'll look briefly in the visions that Ezekiel had and also the one that Isaiah had. And the reason we're doing that is as we dig into the text that we're looking at this morning, uh, we refer back to, to those earlier visions. So this is from Ezekiel chapter 1. And what I've done here is just sort of picked out the verses which relate through to what we read in Revelation. So it's not the whole of chapter 1. So this is Ezekiel's vision. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the centre of the cloud came four living beings that looked human, except that each had four faces and four wings. Spread out above them was a surface like the sky and it was glittering like crystal. And above the surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. And on this throne... High above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire, 
and from his waist down he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendour. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me when I saw it. I fell face down on the ground. So that was Ezekiel's vision of the throne room. And then also we come to Isaiah and he also had a vision of the throne room. And what Isaiah does, and this reflects through to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, is he makes a lot of references to the temple. And so all these references to the temple are there in Isaiah chapter 6 and also in Revelations 4 and 5. Now as we remember, what the temple in Jerusalem was, was it was God's presence among his people. And that's the reality of what we have in heaven. In heaven the temple isn't actually a physical body, but it is the very presence of God himself. So this is what Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered with their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation and the entire building was filled with smoke. So that brings us to John's vision in our reading this morning in Revelation chapter 4. And we'll see a lot of similarities between those other visions and this this morning and there will also be some differences. So before we read, let's pray. Lord, we just come before you and Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. Lord, this is a very, very interesting and exciting portion of scripture. This is where we see through John's eyes the vision that he had of your very throne room. Lord, we pray this morning as we look at your scripture that Lord, that you will impress upon us that Lord, that you are the king. You are the mighty, mighty God. And Lord, we want to worship you and praise you because of that, Lord God. Lord, as we come to your word now, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just guide us and lead us as we read through it, Lord. Amen. So Revelation chapter 4, and we're reading the whole of the chapter, verses 1 through to 11. The throne room of heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature 
was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Am I still coming through the sound system? I Excellent. Vern Poitras, he's a professor of the New Testament and he has come up with a very interesting analogy for this vision that John has. He compares John's vision of visiting the throne room of God to visiting a busy airport control tower. Now, when we're thinking of airports and airport control towers, I suggest that we don't think of our local airport. It's, um, it is what it is, I guess. The biggest airport that I've been in is Christchurch Airport, and I thought that was pretty huge, but people um, have shared with me that Places like Heathrow and Dubai just sort of leave Christchurch in the dust. So if we can sort of just imagine uh, that sort of scene. And this is what Byrne says in his analogy. He says, A casual observer looking out the windows will see planes, vehicles and baggage going every which way. But if the observer is escorted up to the control tower he can see the overall plan of the airport and hear the directives going out to execute the plans of the controllers. Suddenly, the going-ons below make sense and so it is with John. Through his vision, we are transported into the control tower of the entire universe and from this vantage point, as we understand the controller and his plans, things fall into place and even if they sometimes escape our comprehension we know the one who does comprehend it all and his plans cannot and will not fail God is in control as we dig into the text of Revelation 4 this morning we will see that there is a lot going on in this vision and I will try and bring it through as quick as I can without rushing over it hopefully. So I will briefly look at all the details but what we need to keep in the back of our minds is that this scripture focuses on two things. The first is the fact that God is in control. The whole focus of this thing is on the throne of God and we will come back to that in a minute how the whole chapter revolves around the throne of God. The second thing that we will see in this morning's text is the worship which is in response to God's sovereignty and to his majesty. And not only is it a response to who God is, but it also expresses this fact in the words that are sung. Now, there is a bit of discussion, this is just a little bit of a background before we go into it, there is a bit of discussion about whether some of the things that John witnesses are symbolic or whether they are literal. For example, are the 24 elders or the living beasts, are they symbolic or are they literal things that are there in God's throne room? The fact of the matter is, is that John's vision of heaven is real. It may be a case that it's pictorial rather than literal, but that's not quite so important. One of the words that I will use a lot this morning is the word represent. So I'll be talking about what the different factors and the different things in the throne room represent. 
And it may very well be a case that what we read is what is literally there as well. So as we look at some of these descriptions of the various elements of God's throne room, it is what these things represent that is important. And it is what they symbolise that matters. Inevitably, all those things point back to a holy and sovereign God. And the interesting thing as we look through all these things is they put together a bit of a multifaceted picture of what God is like. So clearly we're talking about the sovereignty of God but there's also other aspects which will come through as well. So let's look at verse 1. So we know that John has a vision where the Spirit takes him into the very throne room of heaven and he describes to us what he sees. Um, Now I must mention also the PowerPoint's very basic this morning so basically what I've done is just put up the portion of scripture that we're at and some of the uh, other scriptures that I referenced to. So it's pretty basic this morning. So John says, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So the term after these things is sort of implying that this is John's second vision. So he had the first vision that he had in Revelations chapters 1 to 3 and this is where God, uh, Jesus revealed himself as the glorified risen Lord and then dictated to him those seven letters, those letters that were full of encouragement, um, correction and also challenge to the seven churches. So we are now moving into John's second vision. And also as I mentioned before, this marks a change in the book of Revelation. It marks a bit of a turning point. And this is where God shifts the focus from the seven churches and he takes John into the dramatic scene of the heavenly throne room. And it's from here um, that what we read about in chapters 4 and 5 that the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds. So we see that he has seen a door that is already open and that leads into the very throne room of God. And the voice that he heard, the first voice I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. So this is the same voice that spoke to John during his first vision in chapter 1 verse 10. This is the voice of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus. And he likens it to a trumpet because it is a voice of authority. It is a commanding authoritative voice that Jesus speaks in. And what does the voice do? It calls him. Christ called John and John was transported by the Spirit into the reality of heaven. He was taken there um, for so that he could receive revelation there and also that where he was taken up into the throne room of heaven, this would be his vantage point for the rest of the book of Revelation to come. And for the second time, John makes an exclamation. He says, Behold, a throne set in heaven and the one set on the throne and there was one who was sitting seated on, on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. So this brings us to the main theme that we have here this morning. And that is the throne of God. So what the throne of God is, is it's a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority. So it's not just a piece of furniture. So it's not a case that we have a throne room so we better put a throne in there. It is also a symbol to us of God's sovereign rule and his authority. Now the word throne is mentioned 11 times in chapter 4 and all of Revelation 4 can be outlined on how it relates to the throne of God. So first of all we see the throne and we see who is seated on the throne. And of course, that is God. Then we will look at what comes from the throne or what comes out from the throne and we'll see lightning and thunder and what those things represent. 
And then there is a lot of what is before the throne. There's the 24 thrones and the 24 elders. There's the seven lamps of fire uh, which represent the seven spirits of God. There's this sea of glass and then there's the four living creatures. So all of these things are around the throne and all of us, all of these things tell us something about our sovereign Lord. And then what is directed towards the throne and that is worship. Worship is directed towards the throne and we see that in the second part of chapter 4. We see when the heavenly host starts to worship the living sovereign Lord. And of course that worship, if we were to read on into chapter 5, it just sort of escalates from there. So the one who is seated on the throne is God the Father. Now the term for sitting here indicates a posture of one who is ruling and reigning. Now I can be seated on my lazy boy in my lounge and I can think that I'm ruling and reigning but the reality of it is is I'm just taking it easy in my lazy boy in the lounge there. But the term for sitting here for the Lord is one who is ruling and reigning. Now we're obviously talking about the Lord. Isaiah confirms this in his vision. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Another prophet that we haven't mentioned yet, Micaiah, he also had a vision of the Lord on the throne and that's in 1 Kings 22. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and his left. So the one who is seated upon the throne is the Lord God. One thing that we should note here is that the, all of these guys, Isaiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, they're all terrified by the visions that they had of the Lord God. Isaiah said, I am doomed, I am a sinful man, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Ezekiel, and we read this just a little bit before, he says, This is what the glory of the Lord looked to me. When I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. And Olivia shared with us from Daniel, and just immediately after that portion of scripture that she shared, this is what Daniel said about his vision that he saw of the Lord. I was troubled by all I had seen and my visions terrified me. So these guys had seen the Lord in all his glory and that was their reaction. John describes God as being like Jasper and Sardius stone. Now Sardius stone, it may say in your version of the Bible, it may say, call it Cornelian. Carnelian, yeah, which is the same thing. The description that we have here of the precious stones sort of display to us a couple of things. First of all, they display his wealth, his beauty and his glory. One of the other things that it sort of uh, represents to us is that God is light. As we know, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. The NIV study Bible talks about this description of the precious stones and it talks about them in, in regard to the light of God and how the light of God is an unapproachable light which none can see and it says that he is described here in terms of the reflected brilliance of precious stones. Now Jasper is a crystal clear stone, it's a bit like a diamond and it's good for reflecting light. Sardius stone, uh, which apparently comes from Sardis, which is one of the um, cities that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it is apparently a fiery blood red ruby. So again, this expresses the shining beauty of God's glory, but it also might symbolise to us God's blazing wrath which is about to be poured out onto the sinful and rebellious world. And we read about that from Revelation 6 onwards. Another interesting uh, representation of what these stones mean 
is, and this brings us again back to the temple of God. The sardius and the jasper were the first and the last stones in the high priest's breastplate. And we can read about that in Exodus 28. And what those stones represented was they represented the firstborn of Israel, which was Reuben, and they also um, represent the lastborn, which was Benjamin. So we have this representation of the whole of Israel there as well. So that's the one who was sitting upon the throne, our Lord God. Now around the throne there was quite a bit going on. So let's take a look at what those things say to us. Around the throne there was a rainbow in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So there was this rainbow that was around the throne and it says that it was emerald in appearance so I take it that that means that it was sort of green. So one of the things that this rainbow reinforces to us is again this picture of light, this picture of how God is light. And one of the other things that we can think about when we think about the rainbow in scripture, we're reminded again of Noah and the time of Noah and what the rainbow meant there. The rainbow signifies God's mercy and forgiveness. So this just adds to this picture that we have of the sovereign God. He's a sovereign and mighty God, but he also has there the quality of mercy and forgiveness as well. Uh, The rainbow appears in other parts of scripture as well. It's uh, mentioned in Revelation 10 verse 1 where it's part of a description of a mighty angel. So we won't go into that. Uh, And we also read earlier in Ezekiel how there was a rainbow there as well. And that describes to us again the radiance which is around God. Now the 24 elders, and this is quite interesting because there is a bit of a difference of opinion here about what, who the 24 elders were. So we, we have this thing where some of the experts claim that the 24 elders are actually angelic beings and then we have some other experts who say that the 24 elders are actually human and they are redeemed human who are there as part of the heavenly host and they represent the church. Now what's not important is that we get into all the nitty gritty. What's important is what these 24 elders represent. Those who claim them to be angelic beings, now I must point out that all these guys are much more learned than me so that's why I'm just presenting both their sides of discussion on this. Those who believe that these elders are angelic beings, they point to them as heavenly representative of God's people. And they also point to the fact that their function is typical of angelic beings. They attend the throne of God and therefore hold great power and that's why they have thrones and crowns. And they also distinguish them from believers for a couple of reasons. One, because they present the prayers of the saints, which we'll see next week in Revelation chapter 5 and also in Revelation chapter 5 these elders sing about the redeemed in the third person so they are singing about how the Lord has caused them to become a kingdom of priests to our God rather than singing that the Lord has caused us to become a kingdom of priests to our God so that's the people who say that these elders are angelic beings. The ones that say that they are human, that they are actually redeemed saints, they sort of point to another couple of things. So they point to the thrones and crowns and they say, well, nowhere else in scripture are angels pictured as ruling and reigning. And they also look at the word which is used here for elders and this is the word presbyteros and it means elders. And they say that it always refers to men, not to angels, particularly older men. So if we look around here, we might see a few 
presbyteros, not naming any names or pointing any fingers at myself probably. Okay, but what's important here is not to get into the nitty gritty of that sort of thing. What do the 24 elders represent? And all the experts agree on this. And the key is in the number 24. The first thing that we see or that we can see in scripture about the number 24 and we must remember the church of the first century they understand all of this sort of stuff and they'd understand all these things because they were brought up in the temple um, and they knew the word of God. So the first thing we see is that the 24 represents the 24 orders of Aaronic priests that King David appointed to the temple. And you can read about that in 1 Chronicles 24. Now these priests, they were dedicated servants of God's temple they were set aside as holy and they were consecrated and this um, qualified for them qualified them for service in the temple so they were man's representative before God so we can see that picture coming through on the 24 elders in heaven okay they are the priesthood or man's representative before God now the other thing that the 24, the number 24 represents to us is that it is a reflection of the combination of 12 apostles upon whom the church was founded and the 12 tribes of Israel. And this symbolises a couple of different things to us. It symbolises a God who is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And also it means, shows us that this 12 plus 12 represent together the church and its character as a universal priesthood of believers. And that's what's important here. The 24 elders represent um, the universal priesthood of believers. Now of course I must point out, um, I'm not saying that the 24 elders are the um, 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles. That's not identified here in, in Scripture. Okay, so these 24 elders have white garments and they have crowns of gold. And these are two things that we have read about recently and talked about recently in the letters to the seven churches. So believers at Sardis were promised that they would be clothed in white garments and as we heard last week, the Laodiceans were counselled to buy from Christ white garments. And what the white garments symbolised to us is they symbolise God's righteousness which is attributed to believers by God's grace. Now we come back to that old um, acronym we have of God, of grace, sorry. God's riches or God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Now the crown of golds, obviously if they're crown of golds, they do speak somewhat of authority but we also remember that the believers at Smyrna were promised a crown of life. And this was a victor's crown which was to be worn by those who had endured a trial and had won the victory. Now from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. And this reminds us of God's power when he revealed himself at Mount Sinai to Moses and the Israelites. And I'm just going to read a little excerpt from Exodus 19 which again just reinforces uh, this idea of God's thunder and lightning and how it is his power. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. 
As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. So this speaks to us of the power and the might of our God. It also speaks to us of his judgment. If we were to look later on in Revelation, there are other references to thunder and lightning and it all has to do with God's judgment. There's a reference in Revelation chapter 8 verse 5, one in Revelation 11:19, and a third again in Revelation 16 verse 18. And I'll just read to you the first one uh, just to, to bring across this point of God's judgment. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed, lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. So when we see the thunder and this lightning and this, these voices coming from the throne it talks to us of God's power and it also speaks to us of God's judgment. Now before the throne there was also seven lamps that were burning which represent, and it says it here, the seven spirits. And then there was this very interesting sea of glass that was there before the throne as well. Now when we look at the seven lamps or the seven spirits this talks to us as we've mentioned before in some of our earlier talks on Revelation this talks to us of the fullness of the Holy Spirit And one thing that's very interesting about chapters 4 and 5 here is that we see that all three persons of God are present. So chapter 4 talks a lot about the throne of God and God the Father. We have here mentioned before the throne the seven lamps which represent the seven spirits. And when we read on into chapter 5 we read about the Lamb of God who is of course the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we see all three of them present here in the throne room of God. Um, And I'll also just refer with these seven lampstands. Again we're coming back again to a temple picture and Zechariah also had a vision of lampstands which speak directly about the Spirit of God. Zechariah saw a solid gold lampstand and on top of it there was a bowl of oil and this bowl of oil was feeding into all the seven lamps that were sprouting out from it. And he saw two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. And he asked the angel that was there, What are these, my Lord? What do they mean? And the angel said to him, Don't you know? And Zechariah said, No, my Lord. And then the angel spoke one of those scriptures that we always, always remember that we, um, that's quite common. This is what he said. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So it is the spirit there. And we see the spirit there before the throne of God. And now we're going to take a look at the sea of glass. The sea of glass was mentioned in Ezekiel 1. In Ezekiel 1 it was referred to as a sky. And what the sea of glass talks to us about, and we'll look at this in a second, but what it talks to us about is God's final victory over evil. It is a heavenly version of the Red Sea where, the Moses, where Moses and the Israelites stood near the Red Sea. And God defeated Pharaoh and he pushed back the waters. And what we see there happening was a foreshadow of God's final victory over evil. Now we can confirm this later on in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 15. And uh, this is from Revelation 15 verse 2. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. And on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given him them. And they were singing, and get this, they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. 
Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. So again we have this notion of the people of God because God has now standing near the sea or on the sea and they are standing there as overcomers because God has overcome and he has had his final victory over evil. Now also before the throne and it brings us to uh, another very interesting aspect of this vision and that's the four living creatures and they must have been very near the throne because the description is that they are in the midst of the throne and near the throne. Now the experts don't have any real discussion about this. They are definitely angelic beings and they are very reminiscent of the uh, cherubim that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 and also the seraphim that we see in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 of his book. Now there's some similarities between all of these different uh, groups of angelic beings but there's also some differences. So we see that these four living beings, they have six wings like the seraphim in Isaiah, six. Um, The cherubim in Ezekiel 1 had four wings. Um, But then they have similarities to the ones that are mentioned in Ezekiel as well because they have four faces, um, those four faces of those animals uh, that were mentioned. So Revelation, um, each of the creatures has one of those four faces while each creature in Ezekiel had all of those four faces. So again there's those similarities and then there's those differences. Another part of the description of the four living beings is their multitude of eyes. And this speaks to us of omniscience. Now that's just a fancy word for all seeing, all knowing and perceiving all things. And as such they are God's agents. So their function is, as well as as we'll come to in a minute, as well as constant worship of the Lord, their function is that they deliver God's judgments upon the earth. And we will see this as we explore Revelation later on. The other thing about these four living creatures is that they represent the glory of God. All four are representative of the whole created order. So they reflect what God has created on earth. So if we look at those four faces that it talks about, now this isn't something I've come up with, this is something that I've found, Um, The lion is the greatest and the fiercest of the wild animals. The calf, or the ox, is the strongest of the domesticated animals. Man is ruler of all animals. And the eagle is the most majestic of birds. So all four are represented, they represent the whole created order they reflect what God has created on earth. So that's the scene that we have set before us in the throne room of heaven. We have all these things. We have God the Father who is seated upon the throne which talks to us about his authority and his sovereignty and his majesty. We have all these other things that are around the throne or coming out from the throne and they speak to us again about God and bring more of a picture of what God is like and the fact that he is enthroned. And that brings us to the second part of Revelation and that is the response to the throne of God, the response to the Almighty God and that is worship. The worship that is in the final verses of Revelation 4 is the response of worship to the Almighty enthroned God that we read about in the first part of the chapter. Not only that, but the words that the living creatures and the elders sing exclaim the reality of the almighty enthroned God. John describes the enthroned holy sovereign God 
and then the heavenly host exclaim what that is about in their song. Now, as we witness in both John's vision and the visions of others, that worship is incredible and it's dramatic. The splendour and glory of God that these guys witness is overwhelming and expressing what they see is difficult to put into words. So it's not surprising that the response of worship is also hard to describe. The worship is also incredible and it's very appropriate to the majesty and the glory of God. Isaiah describes how the voices of those worshipping shook the temple to its foundations. Now just imagine reproducing just a little bit of that here. We wouldn't need to do any earthquake testing. If the place is still standing afterwards, it must be all good. I guess the question that we should ask ourselves and the challenge that we should put to ourselves is what is our response to the majesty and the glory of God? Is our worship of the Lord appropriate? Are we worshipping the king of the universe or is our response a little bit ho-hum at times? Now of course I know our worship isn't just what we do here on a Sunday morning when we sing. Our worship, we should be worshipping the Lord in all aspects of our lives. But this scripture does speak specifically about the heavenly host singing and bringing praise to the Lord. Now obviously we're not standing in the throne room of heaven here. This is Wangana East Baptist Church. It's quite different. And also we are not confronted with God face to face. And if we were, there would be no doubt about it. We would definitely respond like those prophets did. We would be humbled, we would um, feel not worthy, but we would also worship and worship this almighty God. Um, The other thing of course is we're not millions and millions. So we don't quite have those numbers to raise the volume and raise the roof. And of course we don't want to be trying to reproduce some sort of rock concert worship service here as well. Um, All of those things we can sort of just get into that sort of a habit. It doesn't matter how we worship as long as we're praising. But however, as with all aspects of our Christian walk, it is good for us to assess our attitude and what we do. Are we doing what we do from the heart? And is it appropriate given the great and mighty King that we are worshipping? So in closing, let's go through the words of worship that is directed towards the throne of God. Let's look at what the content of that worship is. So as we said, God is on the throne, surrounded by the heavenly beings. Surrounded, um, there is thunder and lightning coming out. There's this sea that we spoke about. There's the seven lamps which represent the seven spirits. And then the living beings and the 24 elders, they are performing the function that all creation is meant to fulfil. They are worshipping the Lord. First we have the four living beings and they sing holy, holy, holy. And this again reminds us of what we read in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. God is to be glorified because of his holiness and sovereignty. He is the holy and sovereign over all of creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is an all-powerful God and he is the one who was and is and is to come. So they're praising him for his eternity. God is eternal. But not only that, they are singing towards that hope in the future that Christ will return. He is to come. It's not he may one day turn up if we're lucky. He is to come. So they sing of Christ's return. And then the 24 elders, they join in. Then the 24 elders fall down before him, casting their crowns before the throne. So they come before God in humbleness. And they too direct their praise towards the sovereign, 
eternal God. And they sing, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. God is the creator of all things. And that creation is based on his will. And also we can see his power revealed in that creation as well. To receive glory and honour and power for you created all things because of thy will they existed and were created. Not only did God perform the act of creation but he maintains creation. God's ongoing preservation of creation means that everything that happens throughout history is part of his created purposes. This morning we have looked through John's eyes through that open door and have read about the control tower of the entire universe, the throne room of God. Our God is holy, mighty and he is the king of everything. Let's pray. Lord, we do just this morning, we do indeed declare that you are the great and mighty God. You are the God enthroned in heaven. And Lord, we just thank you that, Lord, that you gave this vision to John and you gave those visions to others. And Lord, we just draw encouragement from what we see there. Lord, just like the first century church, and they were heavily persecuted, but Lord, we also struggle at times and go through things in our lives. But Lord, we can take encouragement from this because we know you are the king of the entire universe. We know that, Lord, you have all things in your hands. And, Lord, we are encouraged because of this. And, Lord, also may we look at our worship, may we look at how we respond to you, how we respond to this great and mighty God that you are. And, Lord, may we sing those words of how holy you are and, Lord, praise you in, in the way that we should. Lord, I pray that as we go forward into this week and Lord, remind us again to worship you in every aspect of our lives. May we indeed live as people who have a reigning and ruling king. Amen.